Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Always a great time of the week to catch up with you as we celebrate the sporting life of another great Australian sportsman. A big welcome to you. On behalf of Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, my guest this morning is a man who sported the red and black with distinction, Alan Ezard. Alan, welcome. Yeah, good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? You're looking really well. You're looking as though you still should be playing. Uh, the good thing about it is, yeah, I've been coaching for the last uh, probably 20 years and still involved with running around with the boys during training and also playing over 50s out of Craggyburn. So, yep, try to have a kick when I can. I still enjoy the game. And uh, you're still getting a kick? Uh, it's not too hard to get a kick in over 50s. All you've got to do is just get a bit of movement around and you'll get a kick. What about the coaching side of it? Do you enjoy that, seeing you've been involved for so long now? Look, I really enjoy it. You know, I had uh, stints out up, up at North Ballarat, Coburg, uh, in the VFL also in those those two clubs and, you know, quite a few of the uh, district clubs as well in St Albans, um, oh, Mount Evelyn, etc. And now out at La Trobe Uni with the amateurs and uh, enjoying teaching these young kids that are at school. We only have them for three or four years and then they move on due to they finish their courses and that. So, yeah, I've been out there five years and really enjoyed it. Is it different coaching today and the modern game than it was, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Oh, look, there's no doubt. You know, back when I first started, you only had virtually two options, cricket or footy. And, uh, you know, these days the kids got that many options. You know, it makes it hard to really get them along the training as well. You know, they're not probably as keen as what they were years ago. And they're a lot smarter than what we were way back then. You know, as I said, we used to just roll up and do what you had to do. And now the kids actually want to know everything, the insides and out of footy. So, yeah, I've had to get my head around that over the last 20 to 30 years and had have seen the change. They often talk about Gen Y um, and the fact that uh, the reason they're called Gen Y is because you tell them to do something and they say, why? Uh, have you found that over the years or are they, are they easy to work with? Uh, look, they're exactly right. Though. As I said, you know, sometimes you set up drills and they think, you know, what are we doing it this way when we should be doing it that way? So they've always got to come back to you and, uh, yeah, keeps it on the toes. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind slapping a few of them around, but <laughs> you're not allowed to do that these days. No, you can't do that. And that's a serious thing that um, when you were coming up through the ranks, you know, there was the fire and brimstone. There might have been the occasional push and shove in the dressing room between coach and player. That sort of thing is a thing of the past. You can't get away with it now. Oh, look, there's no doubt. You know, Shooty was really hard on us and, uh, you know, even the uh, the players and that. You know, if you're out of line, you know, as you said, you used to get a little little backhander or, uh, you know, verbally abused or anything like that. And now you've got to be really careful of, you know, who you might hurt and who you might not. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on coaches now to say the right thing and, you know, just to build the uh, the club up the way it should be now. What's the collection like of the over 50 players that you're playing with? I guess it would be a very disparate group of um, you know, certain professions and, and differing levels of fitness as well. Oh, look, the over 50s is just a bit of fun on uh, Sundays. You know, we, we run around for an hour, crack open the beer as soon as we finish <laughs> and uh, have a good laugh on the ground. There's no, you know, we're not playing for points or a real serious anything. There's always pride when you, when you get out there because I hate losing anything. So... You know, I want to win all the time, but, you know, some of the boys don't really care. I said, you know, some of them well overweight, 
you know, there's that many hamstrings, even though they can't even run, but uh, <laughs> you know, they still do them. But you know, little niggly injuries that they get and that sort of stuff. But it's all in good fun. They you know, put the ice around and put an extra tinny next to the ice and they're happy. Oh, wow, that's incredible. Um, even apart from footy, which obviously keeps you a little bit busy, but you're a grandfather these days, so that keeps you busy too. Oh, yes. My daughter had uh, a little girl, Charlotte, uh, about 18 months ago. And, uh, yeah, just found out now that, uh, yep, she had another one on the way. So, yeah, really excited. The unpaid babysitter. Well, that's what it's always like, you know. You, you get older <laughs> and then it all starts again. So, you know, you might as well yeah, not have kids and wait for your kids or, you know, from outside or whatever to have kids. So, yeah, you always get them back. What are you doing for a cross these days, Wayne? I work for a company called Appetite Foods. We specialise in dog treats and, yeah, we're based out at Sunshine. Uh, our black dog range is all in your pet pet shop food, uh, stores in pet stock and best friends, etc. And I look after the independent supermarkets, food works and IGA looking after yeah, the growth of that. You've got a pooch yourself? Um, no, use I, him as a bit of a no, guinea pig? No, I haven't actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, people always ask me the same sort of thing. You know, have you got a, a dog or cat? I, I did have a cat for about 15 years, but yeah, haven't haven't had an animal since. And uh, yeah, so it's hard to judge. So I have to give away free samples to everyone to find out what's going on. Well, you can throw a few my way for Charlie the Wonder Dog at home. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he'd appreciate it. Uh, look, the dogs are the most spoiled things I've ever seen, I'll tell you. Oh, they like are. People spend on them. Yeah, they get the run of the house. But, but they're they're like another member of the family, really, aren't they? Oh, look, they are. As I said, I've you know I've been to a lot of dog shows and all that sort of stuff, and the way they uh, dress them up and do things, yeah, they're definitely their kids. Do you get to the footy much these days, Helen? Look, I try and get uh, to the footy with my son Andrew. Uh, you know, he's a mad Essen supporter. Not so much at the moment because we're struggling, but mm. yeah, we try and get along if it you know matches him with uh, you know when I'm not at Latrobe and that sort of stuff. So at the moment, we've been to about three games and. Yeah, go along, just sit up there, watch the game, don't really barrack, sort of analyse the game and see how it unfolds and virtually know if we're on fire or not pretty early. So, It's funny how things go in cycles with football clubs, isn't it? Because uh, after the first couple of games this year with Essendon, it was all doom and gloom and the place was about to collapse around John Worsfold and then things changed very quickly and now they might have changed back the other way. You've seen it all before, it's all a bit cyclical. Oh, look, it is. Yeah, you, know, you get all excited at the start of the year, thinking, "Yep, you know, we've we've got Dylan Shields in, and you know, the footy club's looking up. Got a very good midfield at last, and yeah, and then you get your four line that goes down, McKernan, uh, Joey Danaher, even Stewart, etc. You know, they're all out of their four line, so the whole complete structure changes very quickly, and that's what you know a lot of supporters don't understand. You know, you you probably work your backside off for six months pre-season, setting up your drills and how you want to bring it into the four line. All of a sudden, you lose the whole forward line, and and you can really see Essendon struggling to kick goals this year. As a former grade of the football club, how traumatic has the past decade been? Because it has been almost a decade. It must have been a terrible strain for someone who went out there and played almost 200 games in that jumper. It must have been really difficult for you, as it was for every other Essendon supporter. Oh, look, there's no doubt. You know, when the uh, drug saga come out, at Essendon were on this and on that and all that sort of stuff, and... You know, it really had an effect on, you know, not only the, the past players, you know, the, everyone virtually connected with the club. You know, I've spoken with uh, Doc uh, Ian Reynolds and Reed and all those sort of stuff. And, they're, you know, you don't understand how much they're hurt by it all and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it really gutted the club. And then, you know, to have the players suspended for, you know, 12 months and that sort of stuff, it's virtually nearly impossible to rebuild from there. You know, you, the following year, you know, Essendon, you know, they found a couple of players, which was a plus. 
but on the same sort of thing. They still haven't had those players playing together year in, year out, and taking a year off, you, know, you can understand where Essendon are at at the moment. How did you cope with that year when half the team or more was missing? Did it feel like you were going to watch your football team or did it feel like you were just treading water for 12 months? Oh, look, there's no doubt. You know, it was you know, a waste of time to even go and watch a game. I don't even think I actually did go and watch a game just because of you know, how it was set up and that. Uh, you know, you can s- sort of see what even Melbourne Storm, you know, sort of thing where they were playing for no points, but at least they had their full side. So they could mm. actually, you know, build on that. And that's, you know, they obviously went on and, and did very well over the last, or still going very well, Melbourne Storm, where Essendon had no players to play. So, yeah, really set them back, I, I reckon, good five, six years. Obviously, a lot of Essendon people will see what happened and blame the AFL and the way things were conducted. Should there be some blame sheeted home to the football club, though, with the way that, Everything unfolded there. Oh look, I got no doubt that uh, the Essendon Footy Club are, you know, the ones to blame. You know, they they definitely went out and tried tried something different out of the box, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, got found out and got got hurt from it. You know, everyone's trying to look for that little bit of edge to uh, top on, top up, and that sort of stuff. You know, it might be you know something that uh, yeah, they probably shouldn't have went down. And James Hurd, of course, was. Um vitally involved with everything that went on there and he's paid a pretty heavy price in both football and life and now he's starting to get back into the football side of things. Is your attitude towards that forgive and forget? He's done his penalty, uh, now come back into the fold. Is that the way it should be? Oh, look, there's no doubt. You know, Hurdy, Hurdy and uh, the, the footy club tried, as I said, tried something different. Didn't work, got caught out, got the penalties and, uh, yeah, look, you know, you, you get your whack across the back of the head and then, you know, you move on. It, you know, it's not like no different than, you know, doing something stupid out on the footy field. You get that chance again to to make it better and, you know, hopefully her to be able to do that. Have you seen the facilities at Tullamarine? Have you been down there and had a look? Yeah, look, we got invited down as a group uh, when they first opened, which was great. Simon Madden took us right through the whole complex. We'd, you know, take the family down and all that sort of stuff and uh, ha- had a really good look and, uh yeah, what a great setup! You know, just to have the two different size footy grounds up there, your own facilities. You know, the indoor area as well is you know just magnificent when you look at it. You know, so really they've got everything laid out for them. You know, they've got provision to go even bigger if they need to. They've got plenty of land out there. So yeah, look, fantastic. And you know, that's that's the way footy's going now. If you're if you're uh, full time, which they all are now, yeah, they should should have the facilities like that. Bit different to the old days at Windy Hill, although there was something about Windy Hill, wasn't there? That as a training venue, as a facility, and especially in the time when you were at the top of your game as a football team, uh, the crowds that used to get out there for the big training sessions, there was a real buzz about the place. Ah, oh, look, when you're in the middle of a residential area like Windy Hill was, you know, you could just walk you know, 100 metres up the road and you're, you're at the ground. So, yeah, we had unbelievable support you know, you go up into the uh, the stands and that after the even training and that and go up and have a beer. Yes, we were allowed to have beers back then. <laughs> and, yeah, you could go back and, you know, really get to know the supporters as well. So yeah, it was a really good bond between players and supporters, especially up at Windy Hill and that. And you know, it's like any little suburban ground. You go to, you know, Metro Games and around and that. It's just a great atmosphere, just that everyone belongs there. So, yeah, look. Really love Windy Hill. It's no different than playing home at Broadfoot, really. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the home and away games at Windy Hill. And they talk about cauldrons and, and places that you feared going to. Well, that was one of them. When that place was packed, it was uh, fearful for opposition supporters and teams. 
Oh, look, there was no doubt it was one of those grounds, you know, probably no different than going to Victoria Park yeah. or out at Moravan, you know. You always got your unique little areas and that sort of stuff under there and, you know, the bloke or the the people will crowd out on the uh, in the stands and all that sort of stuff. You know, some of them be standing on beer cans and uh, yeah, they'd be all drinking back then. And yeah. yeah, she got rowdier and rowdier as the game went. And yeah, especially if it was fairly close game at three quarter time, you knew the crowd was going to bring you home. Well, we'll find out about that support of the Bombers and where the journey began when we come back on the other side of the break. 184 games, 200 goals and lots of accolades along the way for Alan Izard. He's my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Alan coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Alan Ezard on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Alan, just before we get into the start of the journey, it is Ezard, isn't it? That is correct, yeah. We've got relations at Ezard and all that sort of stuff, but... Uh... Look, when I come down and all that sort of stuff, they're calling me all sorts of things. And uh, and then mum actually rang up the radio stations and said, look, you're pronouncing it wrong. It's Ezard. So, yeah, so we got everyone to change that, which was a good thing. So you know what Orazio's been going through over the last Yeah, few it's weeks. amazing like that. There's quite a few. But, yeah, at least now we know what it what it is. And, you know, from now on, big big uh, Brian Taylor won't be able to get excited as much as he does. Oh, look, I'm sure he will uh, because I think even Orazio came out and said, uh, if you go somewhere... Um, how do you say your name if people ask you what your name is? And he said, Fantasia. So everybody's confused now, yep. but at least we know definitely uh, what yours is. And I remember the clarification when you were playing. All right, let's go back to the start of the journey. Where did you grow up? Yeah, look, uh, born and bred in Broadford. Uh, you know, mum and dad moved up there you know, in their teens. And that was quite, you know, an upcoming little country town sort of thing, not too far from Melbourne. Uh, had uh, seven brothers and sisters, so a big family. And, uh, yeah, we used to always get out the back and, uh, you know, have a kick of the footy and play with the local club and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, great, great spot to, you know, grow up and all that sort of stuff. You know, we had the local lake, swimming pools. You know, actually, it was I was probably more a swimmer than a footy early on too. So, you know, Dad used to take us everywhere swimming and all competitions all around from Mansfield, Seymour, Alexandria, yay, et cetera. So right through there and then... You know, when you get up to school, most of the boys and that are playing footy, so you quickly jump on there and yeah, and away you go. So, yeah, I was playing junior footy when I was about eight years of age and upwards. I think mum just wanted to get us all out of the house, having that many kids, so she could have some time by herself. So, yeah, we used to always, you know, probably live down the footy ground. It was only half a kilometre from our house and that. So, yeah, even off nights and that, I'd be down there kicking the little plastic footy around and all mm. that sort of stuff. And, yeah, had a great time there. So if your dad didn't like footy, you said before you were a bomber supporter from the word go. How did that happen? Yeah, look, the Essendon uh, connection and all that sort of stuff was actually from Broadford as well. We used to wear Essendon jumpers. Most of my family were Collingwood. So, yeah, so, you know, one of the older brother, actually the oldest brother, he was Essendon. So, you know, that probably influenced a little bit where the girls were uh, Collingwood and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so there's a little bit of a, you know, like typical family, we used to uh, egg each other on a little bit, no matter who was playing and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's where a bit of rivalry became in the family as well. Now, they say good things come in small packages, uh, so you must have been a good thing because you would have been, when you were running around as an eight-year-old, you would have only been tiny compared to even the kids that were running around before. Was 
Was your size ever a drawback or did you see it as an advantage at times? Oh, look, you know, back back then you really didn't even think about those sort of things. You know, it was just, uh, especially when I was playing, you know, you see the footy, you just go and get it. And, mm. you know, strange enough, I, you know, by the, I think, under 12s, really, I was playing a lot of ruck as well because I was the only one that could actually jump. <laughs> so, you know, I'd, I'd go up against, you know, people probably about five, six, five, seven. I was probably about five foot or something, but most of the time I could out-jump them. So... Yeah, always had that leap and all that sort of stuff to uh, yeah get out there and wouldn't matter what size you were. We'll talk about that leap a little bit later on because it propelled you quite literally to great heights when you got to the big time. How did you get to the big time? Who was the first one who identified that you might have the talent to be able to make it in the big league? Yeah, it all, all back then we had the zoning area as well. So Melbourne was our zone and you know they used to send up uh, players and all that sort of stuff to take training and everything, but nothing really grew with that. And then uh, I was playing in the seniors at Broadfoot when I was about 17, I think it was, and I won the league best and fairest up there. And and then the following year, a bloke by the name of Paul Cleary come down, who happened to be Phil Cleary's brother. Mm. And uh, yeah, he had a bit of a connection with Coburg and he used to play a little bit of Brunswick as well. And he said, look, you know, you should be going down to try, you know, something a little bit higher and that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, the following year, I yeah I come down to Coburg and had a bit of a run around with them. And Harold Martin was coaching at that stage, so the old Preston tough, yeah. rough nut. And uh, yeah, look, things sort of grew really quickly from there because Coburg Essendon had a fair bit of connection anyway. They had a you know Merv Harbison and and that come across from Coburg to Essendon as well. So they had a couple of players come across, and then Essendon come out and had a look at me. I think against Preston for memory. And Ray Shaw was coaching Preston at that time too. And he, he put a bit of a write-up in the local paper as well. And then a sort of fast track from there. And, uh, you know, Melbourne sort of didn't didn't really show any interest in it and that sort of stuff. So Essendon sort of got under their guard and uh, virtually bought me for about five or 6000 I think it was. And, yeah. Was... Alan, you mentioned that uh, you were in Melbourne's area. Did you ever get to Melbourne? Did you ever train with Melbourne? Yeah, when I was a kid, I was 16 and, uh, you know, got invited down to the preschool games during the week and, yeah, mate of mine, we went down to Melbourne, had a run on the Wednesday, just had a kick around the MCG and then that night we stayed at the Southern Cross Station because uh, we couldn't get back to Broadford or anything like that. So what, a hotel there or? No, nah, just slept on the, the couches in the, you know, the open <laughs> area and, and then got up in the morning and walked back down the MCG and had another run around. And then uh, didn't hear anything else from that for uh, for a while, so you know I didn't think much of it. And you know, obviously went back to Broadford and kept playing with them. And then later on, they in the zoning and that they they got a couple of kids from the Riddle District Footy League, and I was one of those. And we went down and had a run on the Monday, which was after their Sunday game. So we ran around the botanical gardens and. Yeah, virtually didn't meet anyone. They didn't come up and really talk to me or anything like that. It was only one of the recruiters that you know sort of did it. Barassi was coaching at the time and. I said, yeah, I think he said g'day, and that was about it. And even after we came back, there was no interaction between Melbourne and myself. And I thought, oh, well, that's the end of me, and see you later. And as I said, yeah, it wasn't until later on that Paul Cleary gave me the opportunity to say, look, go down the VFL, that's the next best. And I thought, why not go down there and have a crack? And I said, and then lucky enough to get picked up by Essen. So you get to Windy Hill. They've showed a bit of interest, and you're walking into a team that was uh, in a pretty good era for the football club or about to embark on a very good era for the football club. What was that experience like for a, a young fella to walk into this football club that you'd adored from the time that you were a little kid? Oh, look, it was definitely uh, daunting and that sort of stuff. You you roll up out the front of uh, Windy Hill there, and 
just park in normal car parks out there. There's no no you know paddocks or anything to sort of park. You had to find one, walk in there, and uh, yeah, go through the big big change rooms and all that sort of stuff. And then bang, you know, you run into your Watsons, your Danahers, and Vanahars, etc. The players that you sort of knew anyway, and you know they're all you know Mount Mountains, and uh, they're just you know your sort of jaw drops a little bit, thinking, hang on, what am I doing in here? And you know, within probably two or three weeks, it's like any footy club in the end. They make you feel welcome, and uh, yeah, it's just like playing at Broadford again or Coburg. So, a little bit different with the attendances, though. Um, when uh, you started playing, I think '83 was your first year. Yeah, I come halfway through '83. I you know, played half the year with Coburg that one, mm. and uh, yeah, the Coburg crowds were probably around a thousand people. And then all of a sudden, the first game was against, uh, or in the seniors, was against Hawthorne. So. You know, we've got a packed house at Windy Hill at about 28,000, maybe 30. You know, who, who knows how many jumped the fence. But, yeah, it was one of those sort of ground, you know, it's just rocking all the time. So, as I said, I've been there a lot of times as a, uh, you know, supporter and that. But you don't realise how noisy it is when you're out in the ground. How many games did you play in your first year? Yeah, I played the first four in the reserves. And, uh, you know, they're sort of sitting around fifth or sixth for memory. I think we were in the seniors and that. And then, you know, Shooty just wanted to introduce a little bit more run in the side. And, yeah, Darren Williams was the first one that went up in uh, the seconds and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I got picked uh, after five games. So, yeah, lucky to sort of have that role. And, as I said, against Hawthorne. So it was a big, big occasion day. And then you continue to play and you find yourself playing in a grand final. What game number was that? Was that about seven or eight for you? Yeah, I think I played uh, four or five before the finals and the four finals. So yeah, yeah it was. Uh, yeah, you couldn't believe it. You know, you couldn't couldn't ask for any more to sort of you know get to a club and then you know before you know it you're in a grand final and it, it really happened that quick. You know, you just don't realise and you know, and then you've got the big parades and all that sort of stuff, which were you know hundred and something thousand people, and you're just going, you know, you know, am I dreaming again or? Yeah, you know, it's just a norm at Essendon. So many players, Alan, have been on this program and they talk about the joy of winning a grand final, but many of them also talk about the hurt of losing a grand final. Do you think that you appreciated the hurt as much as the players of your era might have, given the fact that you'd only played a handful of games? What was your emotion when you lost that grand final in 83? Look, 83 was, you know, especially for me, it was, you know, it sort of happened that quickly. I didn't realise, you know, how big it really was. Mm. So to me, it was just another game of footy sort of thing. So I didn't, you know, probably understand that, you know, where we were. Because we'd, we'd won, you know, virtually, I think I only lost maybe one game while I was playing, you know, in that year. So, you know, to get to a grand final and lose, you know, it, it sort of, you know, as I said, you know, I was only, you know, 20 years old and uh, it was sort of, Gee, we we got here. What a great effort, sort of thing. And you know, we come from uh, the fifth to getting a grand final. What a great effort. But you know, after the game, you know, Sheedy really sat us down and got stuck into us and all this sort of stuff, and told us, you know, we lost an opportunity. Grand finals don't come every day, and all this sort of stuff. And you know, probably when the siren rang, we got obviously hammered and that sort of stuff. So it probably didn't really affect me that much that day. But after Sheed sat us all down, it you know, then you look back at it and think. Yeah, we did lose an opportunity to, uh, to win a grand final. And, you know, when when are we going to be lucky enough to get back again? And, you know, you don't realise a lot of clubs don't get that other chance again. So, you know, obviously we were lucky to go back and, you know, win the next two years. But, you know, footy's, footy's a strange uh, game. You know, it really teaches you a lot. And, you know, first year that taught me a hell of a lot after it. 
You mentioned those two years that were to follow. I want to fast forward 12 months from where we were, almost 12 months to the minute, minus about half an hour, three-quarter time, 1984 grand final. What was said? What changed that game so dramatically? I know there were positional changes with Leon Baker, but what was said in the huddle that day? Oh, look, I, I think... Yeah, you know, especially a three-quarter time when you know you look at the scoreboard and that. But Shooty actually felt that they were slowing down halfway through that third quarter, and you know we we were a really fit side. You know the one thing that Shooty did really well was the old Tommy Hafey style. You know you get yourself fit enough, you'll you outrun any opposition side in the end. And you know we had that belief, and especially the semi-final two weeks ago when Hawthorne just beat us. You know, we knew that we were around the mark and that sort of stuff. And it was only a matter of, you know, I think we were about, what, 29 points down or somewhere around there. And, you know, we knew we were a chance. And, uh, you know, I said they were slowing up. They they, were, they looked really tired. You know, they, they probably should have been further ahead, there's no doubt. But, you know, that last quarter, you know, we kicked the first couple and you could see them drop really quickly. And then it was just, yeah, a matter of time if we could just, you know, keep that momentum going, which, you know, Simon Madden did an excellent job through the middle of the ground giving his first use of the footy and we just kept pumping the ball in forward and, you know, if you get it in there enough, you're going to score and that's exactly what we did. What about the celebrations? What do you remember of the celebrations in 84? Yeah, it was, it was sort of a, a mixed feeling because back then you had to go back, you know, I think we went back to the Southern Cross, I think it was, and, yeah, it was sort of, yeah, it was a bit of a letdown when you look at it. You know, it was great in the rooms and all that sort of stuff, but then you had that time between there and getting to, you know, the Southern Cross and all that sort of stuff and, yeah, yeah, it was sort of a little bit slow, and then you, you're there. It's sort of like a just a normal function type thing, even though you won the flag. It, it probably didn't really kick on until later on. We went back to one of the pubs in Carlton, and you know, had most of the players there, and then we really started to appreciate what we did, and you know, uh, and just virtually ourselves and our you know wife's girlfriends, etc. Around, it was really good then. And then the following day at Windy Hill was just massive. So second season, a second grand final, and uh, only 12 months later there was another one coming, and we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break with Alan Ezard, my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, a pleasure to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Alan Ezard, a veteran of 184 games and 200 goals at the Bombers, is my guest. It was a pretty easy game footy for you, wasn't it? Uh, because 85, just rock up, another grand final at the end of the year and another premiership. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, you, you come there, as I said, halfway through 83 and you play in the grand final in 83, 84, 85. You think, you know, how good is this and how easy is this? And, uh, yeah, loving life at, you know, age 22. You've got uh, two, two in the bag and, uh, you know, unfortunately one losing one. But, yeah, you're thinking, you know, when's it going to stop? And, uh, you know, it was just great, great uh, reward for the work that we actually did for those years, though. I was sitting on the boundary line that day doing the, the boundary riding for the 85 grand final. So the brawl happened across the other side of the ground. It was a pretty good one. But the one thing I remember, Alan, about 85 was the, the air of confidence about everybody at Essendon in the build-up to that. I just got the sense that you felt as though you were invincible that day. I looked, I thought, you know, especially after uh, 84 where, you know, we did come from behind and get up and that, and it just just had that belief that, you know, we had the side to actually go on and win quite a few premierships. And, you know, as we know, you know, premierships are very hard to win. And, 
you know, the following year, you know, our training really stepped up again. And, you know, as I said, Shirty with the Tommy Hafey background, that sort of stuff, made sure that, you know, we worked twice as hard as what we did the year before. And, you know, we got up and running early and, you know, put the scoreboard. I think we, you know, come out of the blocks really well and sat on top all year. And, uh, you know, we had no doubt that we were the best side in the competition. And once you start believing that, every time you go out in the ground, you know your teammates aren't going to let you down. And no matter what situation the game is, you're going to go out and win the game. So tell us about the brawl, because everybody remembers the brawl in 85. Uh, who did you have in a headlock or who had you in a headlock? Yeah, unfortunately, I was I started on the bench that day. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I missed out on the... Uh, so you were the the only bloke, basically, in the MCG who wasn't involved in the brawl? Yeah, I wasn't happy with that, just quietly. <laughs> I you know, felt like we should have got off the bench and taken on their bench, or, you know, just to get involved with the situation. That but, happened in 1990. Yeah, well, that's true, too. But, uh, yeah, look, at uh, you know... Obviously, Hawthorne wanted to go out and uh, try and dictate that, you know, they were going to be no pushover in that uh, early in the game and that sort of stuff. And, you know, they, they came out and really gave it to us early. And, you know, obviously we stood up. And after that, you know, that's probably, you know, we break even after the brawl and then we smash them on the scoreboard where it really counts. That rivalry that was created between Essendon and Hawthorne still lives on to this day. If you ask Dermot about it, uh, Dermot, I think, respects Essendon but doesn't like Essendon. Is it reciprocated the other way? Oh, look, there's no doubt, you know, especially, you know, that was our start of our final campaign when we were at first grand final, Hawthorne, second, third, Hawthorne. So, you know, three years in a row, you, you, you're against the side that, you know, have been a powerhouse and still are a powerhouse in AFL footy. And, uh, you know, you wanted to be Hawthorne back then, you know, you just wanted it, you know, loved everything that Hawthorne did, you know, got it, had a very good side, well-structured, you know, really tough and hard at the footy, and that's where, uh, you know, we had to get to, and that's why Shooty went out and, you know, got Cameron Clayton and Roger Merritt and these sort of players, so we could have those physically hard players on the ground, and, you know, every time we played Hawthorne, we knew it was going to be, you know, not only a footy match, it was going to be a brawl, and, uh, you know, that's what we expected, and that's what we uh, got. Hawthorne kept on making grand finals in that era. They just kept on getting into the big one each year. What happened to the Bombers after those three years, 83, 84, 85? Uh, look, 80, 86, we, uh, the same sort of thing. We went through a really good pre-season. We, we had a practice game against the the Suns, you know, the paper, I think it was, the best side, you know, and they put them together. And we beat them quite easily, you know, the best best of the rest in the AFL. And we beat them easily out of VFL Park. I think it was a fundraiser for some charity thing out there mm. and we thought yeah we're up and running and then all of a sudden we, we start to lose a few players you know through injuries and that sort of stuff and yeah we started to struggle a little bit you know we we still beat Hawthorne during the year in one of the games but we started to really struggle just to, to maintain you know that lofty standard with uh, injuries and that sort of stuff I don't think we had a really great depth at the club but we had you know probably 25 26 really good players and fell away a little bit and then you know, lucky to make the finals in the end. We, I think we finished fifth and uh, played Fitzroy in the elimination final. And I think we beat Hawthorne maybe three weeks earlier. So we thought we were back on, on uh, path and that sort of stuff. No matter where we were going to finish, we, we were still going to be a chance. But just shows you, you know, if you're not in the top three, you know, it makes it really hard. And we had one bad game against Fitzroy and we were out. So we never got that chance again. 
It took a few more years to get back to another grand final, but you did, and that one that we just mentioned before, 1990, a famous grand final for all sorts of reasons. Did you at least get involved in the stink at quarter time in the 1990 grand final if you missed out on the one in 95? Ah, well, as, as I said, you know, family tradition, Essen and Collingwood, so I had no <laughs> choice to get out there and start uh, you know, running around. It actually happened right where I, I was when the siren went, and uh, yeah, she was a... You know, fairly physical brawl when you look at it. You know, you don't see too many of those ones anymore and that, and so you shouldn't, you know, these days. But, you know, it was really tense. You know, Shorey and that sort of stuff were really keen to make sure Collingwood stood up and, uh, you know, we were on the same thing. You know, we were, you know, the best side that year and unfortunately, uh, yeah, with a couple of draw games before, we weren't really probably in the best shape of mind. But, you know, they they just came out and hit us with everything. And, you know, said we, we try to hit back, but, yeah, in the end, they were just too good. You said uh, there was that little Collingwood connection. What about in the last quarter when it's evident that the 32 years of the Collie Wobbles is about to be buried and that chant goes up around the MCG? You know, for even for the neutral supporters, it must have been intimidating, but it was an extraordinary atmosphere that day. Oh, look, you know, they hadn't won one for, for quite a while and... Uh, yeah, you know, I always said, you know, here, mum, this one's for you. You won't get another one. So I made sure I, <laughs> I gave her a premiership. But, uh, yeah, look at, you know, the noise and all that sort of stuff around the MCG was, you know, incredible, you know, from probably, you know, quarter time onwards. It was just getting louder and louder and louder. And, uh, you know, you could probably feel that, yeah, we weren't, weren't playing good footy that day and, you know, and we got beat quite easily in the end. But, you know, you look look back though, and I always say this to a lot of people too. You look back, and you know, when they had the West Coast draw against Collingwood, and yeah. all of a sudden, you know, we're we're sitting on top. We have a buy, and next thing you know, we got another buy sort of thing. So, you know, and the AFL wouldn't let us really play anyone. So I think we played Fitzroy seconds or something out of Windy Hill in just a, a mock game, and really we were in the end we we're probably underdone. You know, it's like training your horse for a Melbourne Cup. You know, the Melbourne Cup's run on the first Tuesday. It's not run on later on. It's run on that day. And the grand final, you know, technically we beat West Coast last day in September. So that's what I tell everyone. We'll claim that one and forget about the next week after. <laughs> and that's what they used to say. With Melbourne Cups, they used to say that Bart Cummings' genius was the fact that he would not only time it to the week, not only time it to the day, but he would time it to the hour. And I guess Sheedy was of the same mindset that he had you wound up for a certain thing and then everything had to be put on hold and you just had to rewrite the calendar. Yeah, look, at you know, it really made, made it difficult, you know, just to have... Yeah, two weeks off really when you look at it and, you know, you know you're only three weeks away from, you know, a grand final. So, yeah. you know, it was just a strange feeling that no one had ever felt before sort of thing. So, you know, it's all right when you have one week off because you're finished on top and you've earned that and the body's pretty bad at then. So you freshen up a little bit and then you, you get to play again. But, you know, to have virtually three weeks off and uh, restart again, it was it was just something we didn't cope with. That turned out to be the last grand final that you played in, but it may not have been the case. You could have played amongst those baby bombers in 1993. Tell us what happened, because you did play in the final series that year, and you played very well earlier in the final series. Why didn't you play in the grand final? Oh, look, it was probably uh, the same sort of thing. You know, it was sort of a rebuild for Sheeds again. You know, same thing as when I first come to the club. We rebuilt back then in 83, and you know, got some young kids through there, and hopefully give them a taste. Uh, a taste of finals and hopefully be better players the following year. So I don't think, you know, probably Shooty in that stage probably didn't think we were going to win a grand final that year. And, 
you know, probably thought, you know, well, let's get some of these kids some more, you know, final of the experience and that sort of stuff. And I hadn't played much footy. I had bad groins and uh, retired sort of halfway through the year as well and sort of come back later on when they had a few injuries. And, yeah, I probably hadn't played for about eight weeks in the seniors and because they had a lot of injuries, you know, they called me up against Carlton in the night game and, uh, yeah, it was a really close game that game and, you know, we only just lost and who knows if I if we won, I might have got a game the following week. But I can understand where she was coming from because I'd been through the same thing 10 years earlier. And as it turns out, it was a wise decision because, well, it didn't look that way against Adelaide at halftime, did it? No, look, it didn't. You know, that you know, back then, I think they were five or six goals at half time, and you know, then all of a sudden the kids kicked kicked in the gear and ran over the top of them. And I went down the rooms on the grand final day with the uh, Essendon Carlton game, and Carlton were fairly short odds on favour for that one. And I actually came out to uh, the family who were sitting up in the stands. I said, "Look, we're going to win this quite easy today. You could, you could just feel it in the room that they're ready to go." And it was the same sort of feeling that I had probably 10 years ago sort of thing. So, mm. yeah, you could just see it in everyone's eyes that they were ready to go. So they win the flag. Your career comes to an end. You said, you know, the groins were troubling you. When you looked back, did it all seem like it was just a whirlwind, that 10 years? Did it seem like it disappeared in 10 minutes? Oh, look, it always does. You know, it's it's like going to any job or anything like that. You, you roll up and it's part of your everyday life and it really does go you know, before you know it, yeah, I'm up at North Ballarat coaching up there and, you know, starting another chapter in your life and everything. And you look back, you know, probably probably more so, you know, 10 years later where, you know, you understand footy a little bit more because you're out coaching and you've got a new group coming through. And, you know, you look back and think, gee, you know, I wouldn't have mind doing, you know, this a little bit better or that a little bit better. I, you know, I might have picked up another, you know, one or two grand finals, you never know. Mm. Coaching at North Ballarat would be an interesting experience. I've spent many a, a day there at um, Eureka Stadium or Mars Stadium as it's now called and it's a great stadium now. They've redeveloped it but by jeez, it was cold. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, it's a unique place, there's no doubt about that. I <laughs> I remember rolling up there and, uh, you know, we had a look around and we ended up moving up the Ballarat for three years and uh, the first two years in the Ballarat Footy League. And, you know, I used to go to training and uh, had two tracks, trackies on. I'd have <laughs> three jumpers, a beanie, gloves and everything. And the locals would get up there and they'd have their shorts on and singlet tops and run around as if there's nothing wrong with her. But, <laughs> yeah, she was cold. I played in a couple of snow days up there as well and, uh, yeah. you know, three foot of mud and all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, look, it was great to get back in the country footy though as well. And North Ballarat had a great setup, and uh, you know they always wanted to go further. And you know we took them into the VFL uh, the following year, so the third year we were in the VFL, and yeah, it was great for the town and all that sort of stuff as well. And you know you could see North Ballarat building and building. You know it suffered a little bit in their local team, uh, but overall, you know the experience of going in the VFL for the town was really good. And then you know eventually they had the alignment with uh, North Melbourne and had a lot of success and. Unfortunately, now they've they've gone back into the Ballarat League mm. and standalone just through dollars and that sort of stuff. As we know, it costs a lot of money to support any footy now. Yeah, it was a wonderful era for the football club, and Jared Fitzgerald had a lot to do with the success of that football club when they got those premierships. And I remember a young Isaac Smith running around for North Ballarat in about his fifth game in a VFL grand final, and we see what he's gone on to do. It was a great era for the club. Oh, there's no doubt. And I, you know, one of my mates actually coached him out of Ballarat, Grand Polkinghorn, and uh, you know, he said this kid's going to be, you know, a very good footballer. And then uh, all of a sudden, he's gone from you know Ballarat Footy Club to North Ballarat in the VFL, and then gets drafted. And mm. uh, yeah, what a great story! 
We're just about out of time. We'll take our final break. And I mentioned I wanted to talk about the hangers because you were famous for them and you took some of the great marks that we've seen in the era when you were playing. And also state football as well was something that you excelled at. We've got a bit more still to talk about with Alan Izzard when we come back with our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Alan Izzard on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Alan, I mentioned state football. It was big when you were playing and you had the honour of winning the EJ Witten medal as well. What sort of a thrill was it to pull on the big V? Back then, you know, you used to watch it when you were a kid and all that sort of stuff as well and think, you know, how good would that be to, you know, play with the best? You know, we play against them all the time and, you know, you get to know a few of the boys on state trips and all that sort of stuff was unbelievable. I know, it, you know, one of the years I was with uh, Busey from Geelong and, uh, yeah, what a character he was, you know, to room with and that and what a great bloke and, uh, you know, had a really good friendship with him. He actually uh, got reported for striking me in one of the games and I got him off. So, yeah, just through, you know, knowing him through, you know, Victoria footy, if it was probably a Hawthorne one, I probably would have dobbed him in. Earlier in our chat, we spoke about the fact that you played in the ruck when you were in uh, about eight years old um, because you could jump and we saw evidence of that when you got to the big time. What was the best mark you ever took, do you reckon? Gee, I don't know. Yeah, there's a good one out at VFL Park. You know, it's I amazing. remember that one. It was about... I know probably 70,000 people there, but I reckon I've ran into 120,000 people that said that they were there that day and said, you know, what a mark it was and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I took a good one in at Windy Hill against him as well, but this time was from the front of the pack. So, yeah, Big Harry was uh, yeah, a nice bloke to jump over, six foot seven or eight or whatever he was. So, yeah, it all, all probably started when I was younger. You know, brother and I used to have a little kick to kick out the back of, at home, and I used to always take the woodshed side. It had the the wood up the side, so I could actually run back and jump on there where he had nothing up the other end. So, you know, we used to have the goal set up, and that used to be the thing. And I'd, I'd used to try and get as high as I could to stop stop a goal going through. And I think that's where I, I learned how to leap. Did Sheeds give you a license to leap? Because obviously these days there are a lot of people who can leap, but the coaches are saying, well, just make sure that you stick to the system and stick to the structures and process and all that sort of thing. But occasionally a coach will say to you, if you can jump that high, just go for it. Was that the way that Sheeds looked at it? No, it actually wasn't. He uh, used to send the runner out all the time. So Pete Power used to come out to me all the time and used to say, stay down, stay down. And I said... I reckon I can outmark these blokes anyway. And I used to say that to Pete all the time. And I said, they should be raving to me, you know. But it was sort of hard because, you know, you had your Van der Hay, your Simon Maddens, your Roger Merritt's up forward. And, uh, you know, half the time they'd mark it and, you know, and they wouldn't come to ground. So I just thought, well, if it's in my area, I'm just going to go for it. I'm only going to get told off. So, you know, if I do mark it, it's probably okay. If I don't mark it, probably not. But I think, you know, after the first probably two years and that, Sheeds virtually said, yeah, I think you can mark. So, yeah, the average mark I had wasn't too bad. So, yeah, so why not do it? Who are the blokes you admire in footy these days who can take the big grab? I mean, Jeremy Howe comes to mind pretty quickly, but you've got young Aaron Norton coming through the ranks for the Western Bulldogs. Are there blokes that you'd like to see plying their trade in the air? 
Oh, look, I always like the little blokes, the big blokes. Yeah, they, you know, they've already got a head start, a couple of feet. So, you know, to me, they're not really jumping. They're only using their height. But, you know, Eddie Betts was fantastic early mm. on. You know, he, he used to really attack the footy in the air and Walters from uh, Fremantle and that sort of stuff and Cameron from uh, Brisbane now. Yeah, the little blokes, they're the ones that I want to watch. I, you know, as I said, I, the big blokes don't interest me at all, taking hangers. So we'll stick to the little blokes. Now, in closing, Alan, uh, this might have been a worthwhile visit into the studio because it seems as though you might have been able to secure a prize recruit, my producer, John Clark. What would be the selling point? If you sat down with Clarkey and told him that you wanted him at Latrobe, what would be the selling point to get this great talent to the club? Well, we'll definitely get him uh, now that he's uh, made a statement. We'll uh, we'll get him up there and we'll we'll have a good look at him. But yeah, Latrobe Uni, you know, it's a it's a young uh, side that we've got. I think our oldest player in the seniors is about twenty five years of age. So the good thing about it, you know, our two dollar pots out there or two dollar beers will, your will definitely point. be a selling put. We've got uh, two ladies team. Uh, you know, we've got a brand new ground, the same size as Eddie Head Stadium. Now, new facilities up there. The lighting sensational. Yeah, so anyone out there that's not playing footy, get up to La Trobe and you'll get a, get a run around with the boys. But as I said, the social side, yep, if you don't wake up with a hangover the next morning, you've had a pretty ordinary night. Oh, I reckon uh, you won't have any worries in that regard if Clarkey joins your football club. Alan, thanks for coming in. It's been a pleasure to relive that great era for Essendon, the thrills that you gave us in state football and those magnificent marks. A great career. Well done. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Alan Ezar joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back same time next week. Hope you can join us then. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91